seconds flat. Give me up. Put it down, put it This is the second flat running podcast. He's been broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Blake Jones. Oh my gosh. Welcome to mile 144 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast brought to you by Columbus Running Company. Last week, we interviewed a world-leading exercise scientist, so why not make it two weeks in a row? The birthday boy is here, Dr. Phil Gregory. How are you, my friend? Oh, you had amateur hour on last week. Now it's, now it's time <laughs> to have the pros back on here. Oh, my goodness. What an episode last week, man. That was a fantastic interview. Yeah, thanks. Andy was was fantastic. And we'll, we'll get into that more uh, in this episode. We'll recap the Andy Jones interview and examine some of our biggest takeaways. And also, we'll dive into some of the first scientific literature on the Norwegian training model and more broadly, the effects of threshold training. Before we do so, Phil, uh, having a good birthday? It's been great so far. What better way to spend it than to chat with you? This is my gift to you. My Actually, the gift to you, Phil, has already happened a couple hours ago as your Furman Paladin stayed alive in March Madness at the historic Harris Cherokee Center at the visit or exploreashville.com arena. It's a mouthful. I don't even know, but... I, I think you missed some sponsors on that. <laughs> oh, that was... They're almost stomping on my heart yet again after the uh, heartbreaking loss in overtime last year in the final to the semifinal round to be up by 20 points and have them come back to overtime and, oh, painful to watch. You're one win away from the big dance, Philly. That's right. 26 wins on the year. We've had a good season. Great season. You're right. Great season for Coach Bob Ritchie and the Paladins. He may, he may be in line for uh, UNC's head coaching job. <laughs> oh, uh, the season they've had. We will discuss the coaching carousel in a future episode. For now, Phil, <laughs> so much has happened in track and road racing and field events since you were last with me two weeks ago. Let's quickly discuss some of the biggest moments. And at the top, that means the World Cross Country Championships in Australia, which we were so excited for. Lived up to the hype, rugged course, brutal weather conditions. Those circumstances were highlighted when Let's Invent Gaudet, who appeared to be meters away from victory, stumbled and collapsed just short of the finish in the women's race. Beatrice Chabet and Jacob Kiplimo are your individual champions, with Kenya taking both team titles as well as the team title in the 4x2K mixed relay. Phil, before we break down the results a little more, any thoughts on World Cross? I think number one was just the excitement leading up to it. Australia did such a fantastic job putting that on. Mm -hmm. And they had such a phenomenal team there. I'm a little probably disappointed in the team that the U.S. sent. You know, it wasn't probably our our heavy hitters you know if you look at the the top ranks of pro u.s runners it is loaded with guys that have won ncaa cross in the past and have been very successful in cross country and i get why they aren't going because it's early in the year it's halfway across the world so it's a huge hit and interruption to their training but regardless what a what an exciting event and i wish this would would kind of catapult cross country into the uh, Olympics for a consideration for potentially a uh, winter Olympics bid. Yeah, let's start there. Two great points in reverse order. Cross, get it at the Olympics. Spot on, Phil. And you're right. It's a winter sport. There's no question. It has such great history and at history at the Olympic level, too, and mm-hmm. even yeah. though we haven't seen it in quite some time. 
Second point to the American team. For the runners who were there, it was quite a solid out, outing for our American much squad. So. In particular, Emma Coburn was fantastic in the mixed relay, moving the team up to fifth position, which they held on to. To your point about some of the top folks not being there, though, the, the mixed relay team was devoid of men's stars, although we had mm-hmm. Emma Coburn and Heather McLean. Part of the benefit there was the following week in Australia, we had the Maury plant meet, which we'll uh, touch on more here in a second. So that drew in some some of the bigger runners so that they could actually get to a high level track event also while down under. Our juniors ran exceptionally well. Both the U-20 boys and girls teams took bronze medals. The home Aussies earned bronze in the mixed relay and fourth in the women's team race. I thought Jess Hull was the star of the day for Mm -hmm. the Aussies. Uh, She moved them to first place on the second leg of the relay before uh, Stu McSwain was unable to hold on. But she ran strong and just looked physically stronger than ever. And then in the individual men's race, Kai Robinson, the collegiate from Stanford, had a great day as he finished 23rd overall in the men's race representing Australia. So in sum, a really nice day for the Australian team. I do think they had hopes of perhaps even gold in that team relay. They had to be one of the Mm -hmm. favorites coming in. We saw just the difficulty of the course and the experience level of the East African teams running those type of courses more frequently. It showed, uh, particularly in, in the third leg with Stewie McSwain, and then in the opening leg, the first men's leg with Ollie Hoare. They were in the mix, but they were just, from a cross-country sense, outclassed a bit on that yeah. day. So uh, as we mentioned, the Maury Plant meet followed, that's formerly the Melbourne Track Classic. The showstopper there was 16-year-old Cameron Myers in the mile, while finishing third behind pro stars Ollie Hoare and Sam Tanner. Myers became the second youngest person ever to break four minutes in the mile behind only who, Phil? Who, Jim Ryan? Oh, good guess. No, it was uh, Jakob Ingebrigtsen. Ah, okay. Yeah, Ryan was at an exceptionally young age, the mile world record holder. He, I believe, was, we'll have our, uh, our tech give the editors back checking. Our, our, <laughs> our tech team will follow up on this, but I, I'm going to just, boldly assert that i think he was like nine days older than inga britson okay but i very well i I might have invented that number i do know this moreover his time of 355.4 broke the age 16 world record so when he did it at 16 he actually did it slightly faster than inga britson Mm -hmm. big week In Australia, we'll stay on that side of the world. We are in the heart of Japanese marathoning season. Last week in the action was in Osaka. There, two Japanese men broke the national record for a debut marathon going under two hours and seven minutes. And another Aussie, 43-year-old Lisa Whiteman, ran a blistering personal best of 223.15 in the women's race for the third fastest time in Australian history. Phil, it's your birthday. We, we are aging athletes. Oh, I, I am just, I'm ripening right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is no excuse for us not to hit some PBs because these Aussie That's women, right. Lisa Whiteman follows up what Sinead Diver did a month ago. We just both need to go get better, but uh, there's, uh, you, there's, there's no excuse. Well, yeah. I mean, Lisa Whiteman, did she not turn it around and run Tokyo today? Today, yesterday, whatever that is with the time sheets, I'll have to look up the results because I know she was in it, uh-huh. but so she was at least entered. Well, get, that makes me just feel old to consider that she is crushing a marathon and then turning around and doing it a week later. I want no yeah. part of that. Yeah. What do you think about that seven day turnaround based on the way you felt after CIM in December? No, seven days after CIM, I was happy I could walk downstairs. I have the Tokyo Marathon results from overnight last night because I watched some of it last evening that we record here on Sunday night. She finished 13th in 231.42. So not bad action at Tokyo from her. To Tokyo, we've had huge action this whole weekend. Cam Levins led the Tokyo Marathon through 40K on his way to a Canadian 
and North American record time of 2.05.36. He was edged out in a closing four-man kick as Ethiopian Deso Galmissa nabbed the win. Domestically on the roads at the U.S. 15K champs, which were back in Jacksonville at the Gate River Run. Boots on the ground, our reporter slash athlete there, friend of the show, Kyle Kugler, said hottest Gate River Run on record. So unseasonably warm conditions in early March. Emily Sisson defended her crown, and Hillary Bohr is your men's champion. Well, and shout out to uh, Furman's own Emma Grace Hurley. Who I second place. Second, yeah. Yeah, excellent showing. With yeah. uh, the Atlanta Track Club now. So that's a great result for her. That's right. Good weekend for your dens. Uh, the Euro Indoor Champs were this weekend as well. Uh, we mentioned Jakob Ingebrigtsen. He was the headliner there, completing a 1,500 and 3,000-meter gold medal double. He didn't get all the heavy hitters, combination of scheduling, indoor prioritizing, some injuries, but nonetheless, another feather in his cap. And Laura Muir won her fifth 1,500-meter title at Euro Indoor Champs. Uh, Last night in California at the 10, the track racing was outdoors and did not disappoint Elish McColgan won the women's 10,000 in route. She broke Paula Radcliffe's British record. In second, Alicia Monson's time of 30.03 easily dipped under Molly Huddle's American record. And oh, by the way, since we last spoke, Phil, Ryan Krauser threw a new world record in the shot put at the Simplot Games. That new technique's working for him. Yes, it is. Absolutely. I look (laughs) forward to seeing if those changes he is making as the world's best become revolutionary, although they're not as dramatic as, say, like a switch from a Western roll to a Fosbury flop. It will be very interesting to see if others follow his lead. Mm -hmm. To add to that, Mondo Duplantis broke his own pole vault world record. Femke Boll ran a women's indoor 400 meters world record. And NCAA, she is on fire right yeah, now. she's been incredible. And NCAA indoor champs are next weekend. Phew. Unreal action, Phil. I'm tired now. I would say I need to go train more to catch up with them, but I'm exhausted even thinking about it. All kinds of area and world record marks. Great competition. And again, it's only going to build next week at NCAA indoor champs. So we look forward to recapping that action with you next time. All right, Phil, let's out of, uh, out of curiosity, have you seen what the qualifier is for the indoor champs 1500? Well, it's a mile. They do it ah, a mile indoor. I need to pay attention better. Yeah, you do. You need to know your sport. And I believe men's mile, you had to be under 356. I want to say Ooh. I saw the marks of uh, people who declared, and I think it was 356-ish Yeah, to even get in right. to, to the to event. To even be on the star line. That's incredible. Yeah. So, Phil, let's go to the main courses. It was a tremendous privilege to interview world-renowned physiologist Andy Jones last week. We want to share some of our reflections on his insights. So, Phil, the floor is yours. What were the most significant learnings that you took away? Oh, there were there were a couple of things here. And first of all, he I cannot have been more excited that you got him on as an interview because he has such a background and knowledge from working or I guess testing Paula Radcliffe, Elliot Kipchoge, the work that he's doing now around beetroot juice and nitrates and nutrition, and the work that he's done around this concept that we've talked about in the past with critical speed or critical power. Hmm. So I think first, you know, he, he referenced Michael Joyner's model of marathon performance, looking at the the variables of VO2 max, of lactate threshold, and running economy. But then he also added essentially the variable of critical speed, which we'll talk a little bit more about some measurements and internal versus external variables later in, in the paper we'll discuss. But to me, that's one of the more interesting concepts that's come out in the past handful of years, getting away from somewhat of a physiological measurement to a mathematical measurement. Mm. What I mean is that, you know, we can calculate some of what our expected paces and expected output should be based on a curve 
from our, our training, from races across various distances, and moving beyond just heart rate or lactate, but using this mathematical modeling to look at training paces, essentially. You're giving me a puzzled, quizzical look there, but... Uh, no, I really like that because I'm, I'm thinking of in the distance world, there is a renowned coach who has guided some of the best marathoners over the past three, four decades who uses a very mathematical approach to his training. And that would be Renato mm -hmm. Canova. Mm -hmm. He is incredibly formulaic, working from marathon goal speed in uh, an entirely mathematical way. So it was just an immediate connection of uh, one of the best practically uh, with, with application is using that approach. And the, the simultaneous thought I had is you mentioned those three key parameters, which of course we broke down quite a bit last week. You add the fourth wrinkle of critical speed. I really liked his description of critical, uh, critical speed as a reflection of two of those variables combined, being running economy and lactate threshold. Yeah. If he notes that VO2 max is the least malleable of the three variables, that to me could be interpreted as saying the other two might be, although he wasn't willing. And of course, it, it's hard to have a, a, someone who is based in the lab they don't do work on supposition, right? As, mm -hmm. as a coach might have to. And so I'll go ahead and assert a position here that those other two variables, lactate threshold or fractional utilization and running economy might be the places to focus more in your marathon training if the VO2 max mm -hmm. is less malleable. And if just touching it does enough work, just dipping your toe into that severe domain does enough work to, to stimulate it, then critical speed encompass, encompassing both of those parameters makes it incredibly significant. But also the fourth parameter as he sees it is that durability or fatigue resistance factor. Right. And well, if, if running economy is what is most impacted, that was his guess uh, through his work that running economy is most affected is the one is the one piece that most deteriorates with fatigue figuring out a way to understand critical speed over time as he's doing in the lab and then mm -hmm. for us how do we employ that in training to to hang on to it over time so that intervariable variance of 1 to 22% he noted in, oh, in, tremendous. Yeah. in flagging criti critical speed beyond the two hour mark. What can we do that's not genetic that, that we can control now in our training to push ourselves closer to the 1% end of that spectrum? That's a huge takeaway. Yeah. Well, and durability from, from my perspective was one of the other big components that he discussed and being much more articulate than we have been. And we really haven't touched on it too much, but We've discussed it a little bit in the past few episodes, but you know we are always presented with this idea of these physiological parameters of your lactate threshold, of your VO2, of your running economy being somewhat fixed measures, but that's not necessarily the case, and those measures change under conditions of fatigue. Mm. And I'm with you. I, I think that really just raises the question of what do we need to do in our training differently to to affect that. I mean, yes, we know that you know, certain workouts train your lactate threshold, certain workouts train your VO2, but if our weakness is that we're falling apart at the later stages of long, long races, then maybe we're, maybe there's an execution component, but maybe there's a physiological component that we need to do something differently from a, a training perspective. So it kind of raises a few more questions maybe than it does answers, but as well, the, the other comment that he made, and I think it was somewhat in passing, but was really more along the lines of the specificity of training. You know, he talked about what Paula Radcliffe was doing and, you know, the, the semi-success that she had around 5,000 and 10,000 meters, but she had a phenomenal success at the marathon for essentially the same, the same reasons, that the amount of training she was doing, while it was tremendous in volume, may have been taking a little bit of her leg speed out of her effectiveness at the 10K, but that only made her that much more effective for the marathon. So considering, and it's a concept that we've talked about a little bit, but knowing what you're training for and why you're, why you're doing what you're doing, 
yeah, it may be fun to jump in 10Ks here and there just to race a little bit and have fun. But ultimately, the race that we're pursuing is a marathon or even a 10K that we need to be doing stuff specifically targeted toward towards that. Great point, Phil. I had that on my list of connections that I wanted to make between what Professor Jones presented and other research and data that we've discussed here. He attributed, as you said, her lack of championship, in particular championship race success on the track to an imbalance within training as a result of doing so much steady and tempo running and consequently not being able to hit the necessary world-class speeds in track sessions without enough easy running. Uh, But then that approach, as you said, worked better for marathoning. It reinforces the elite athlete studies that we have done a three-part series on. Know what is most significant to prioritize for your event. The marathoners overwhelmingly in those studies prioritize the long run, And the track runners prioritized the track sessions. And she was perhaps to some degree flipped in that while still running on the track. As a caveat though, Phil, I do think running that 10K race is still valuable because that can, within a marathon build, serve as your work on another parameter if economy and and threshold and VO2 max are these parameters that we want to stimulate all of them through our sessions. That 10K session as a race is probably relatively close to critical speed work for a lot of runners and could be good value within training as long as it's contextualized. And that might be the thing that Paula Radcliffe struggled with during her track career. Probably final point that I, I took away is, is to me, he seemed like a very old school mm-hmm. coach and that he discussed how, how hard these guys were training. You know, he referenced Steve Jones and him running 208. He referenced that Paul Radcliffe never really ran easy miles. And while I don't think that's necessarily ideal for an average runner, I do think just in general that there's a whole lot more emphasis being placed on you know, easy running zone two or accumulating a ton of easy miles. But I think we're almost throwing the baby out with the bathwater and that you still need to train hard. Mm. So I think that was a, to me, that was a huge takeaway that, yeah, it's okay to go out and, and get some easy miles and to keep things under control. But at the end of the day, you need to be putting in the work to be successful. I had that on my list as well, Phil. Uh, Professor Jones is a product of his era in some ways, when Mm -hmm. he discusses the emphasis on quality and the Steve Jones training. And while it is true that elites like Radcliffe and Kipchoge do significant amounts of quality work, that point to me raised real questions about scalability and longevity for the masses. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think that Paula Radcliffe in particular, even among elites, is a bit of an outlier in her ability to handle, you know, I referenced those steady tempo runs that we saw repeatedly. He he did note uh, her ability to run so quickly, so quickly with such low blood lactate levels playing a role in that, that she didn't feel so fatigued. Her, Her standard session that was so popular while she was training for her world record attempts, in addition to those were six and a half minute intervals that she would often sandwich that with a steady run one day and a tempo run the day after. Now, of course, she's doubling with a bunch of easy stuff, but I, I don't think that element is scalable for most of us. And I, yeah. I do question how it would affect our longevity. That might even be true for a lot of elites. But it does say that if we control our intensity well, both in our easy mileage and within our harder sessions and balance that quality and quantity, we need to get good quality in. We cannot eliminate, as you said, just, just throw out the quality. It's, it's incredibly significant. And those adaptations are irreplaceable. But controlling that intensity well also is a great segue to the research topic for tonight that we'll get into here shortly. Before we do, I just want to make a couple other connections that I see that build on what you brought up, Phil. One is high-end aerobic training, 
uh, these steady runs, tempo runs, progressive runs, threshold runs seem key to marathon success, regardless of the system. And mm-hmm. Paula Radcliffe did it a certain way. Ellie Kipchoge did it another. The Ingebrigtsens and the Norwegian model that we'll discuss in a moment do it a third way. And there's other approaches. As he said, there's many ways to skin the cat, but they're doing a ton of high-end aerobic training in all of them. I found the most significant takeaway, as you referenced, it, maybe what seemed like a throwaway comment to me was, what was the one workout Elliot Kipchoge will not miss and considers most important. I found this to be a tremendous insight that I had not heard before couched in these terms. And that is the Kenyan long progressive gear change run mm-hmm. that, that embeds the tempo run within the long run as you work toward critical speed, Professor Jones said by the end of the run. And of course, that's nuanced in that it might mean critical speed at that point while under fatigue. Regardless, we're moving through those gears. I love that it's not focused around just hitting specific splits. He's not saying you have to go out and hit the last six miles at marathon pace. Most of us can say from experience that approach isn't as fun. And when it doesn't end well, it's both very demoralizing and very fatiguing. It takes a long time to recover from. This approach is that gentle yet noticeable squeeze over the course of the miles. The Japanese are doing this a good amount as well. We see their marathon depth. If the greatest of all time won't miss it and considers it the central aspect of his training, how can we incorporate something like it? it we should be yeah. focused on that. So we have to scale that point and we have to scale the total amount of high-end aerobic training that these greats are doing to our training. The consecutive days or that length of run that Kipchoge does, the consecutive days being in the Radcliffe example, they're, they're likely a lot for us mortals. But the example many of us can look at and say is maybe we can't do 40K or 25 miles progressive every other week like Kipchoge and his camp do. But could we build to 90 minutes in this format every other week or two hours every other week and then maybe two and a half hours every other week? And it doesn't have to be every other week. And it doesn't always have to be in this long progressive style. But there's certainly something to subjecting your body to enough of the conditions you'll see on race day, but without pushing it so far over the edge that the effort becomes deleterious to you. You know, just walking out today and saying, well, hey, Elliot Kipchoge does 25 miles progressive in his long run. I should too. That's a terrible idea. Yeah. You have to be trained and prepped for it. But the concepts that underlie it from that little throwaway comment of his favorite and his most important, I believe are incredibly valuable for all of us in our training. Yeah. All right, Phil, let's now turn it to a really interesting new research article that came out. This was linked from Alex Hutchinson, author of Endure in his Sweat Science blog on Outside Online, which I guess uh, you have run out of your free articles, you told me when I sent you the (laughs) link. So we'll have to get you a subscription here, maybe with all our sponsorship money. The real takeaways are actually in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health a February special issue titled The Physiological and Mechanical Performance Determinants in Running. The paper we are referring to is Does Lactate-Guided Threshold Interval Training Within a High-Volume, Low-Intensity Approach Represent the, quote, Next Step in the Evolution of Distance Running Training? One of the co-authors on this paper is former Scandinavian area record holder in the 5,000 meters, to some degree, a godfather of the Norwegian training model, model, Marius Bakken. So Phil, now that I have gotten all these 
huge jumbled titles of articles and journals out. Let's actually get to the meat. I loved the way that Alex Hutchinson prefaced it in his uh, article when he quoted Michael Joyner in saying, everything I ever needed to know, I learned from the 1964 Olympic 5000 final. Uh Uh, Did you finally get to see that? Did you get to see the actual Hutchinson article? I did see that, and I, I've heard him talk about that before uh, with some interviews with Vernon Gabbetta that he does. Yeah. But looking at who was in that field in 64 and the variety of training methods that were employed successfully mm-hmm. uh, really makes you think that, that there's, and referencing this paper, it, it's to me almost like a so many other things that there's really nothing that new under the sun. Yep. It's just repackaging and redoing how we are measuring it, interpreting it, testing it, but that it's all built off of stuff that has been being, that has been done for decades. Yeah. So in the 64 final, Bob Scholl wins, who was an Igloy disciple, a Miami of Ohio grad, and Scholl used those kind of short, hard intervals, which got at threshold training in a certain way. You had the Lydiard influence of really high mileage also in the 64 final, the Bowerman hard easy day concept on display with Bill Dellinger. Mm -hmm. So it's super fascinating, but you're right. This Norwegian model today seems to take elements of really all the great systems over time. There is a survey of historical trends and best practices within this article. There's pieces of all of them that show up. The ultimate goal of the paper is an attempt to explain the effectiveness of the Norwegian double threshold model. And I do believe it applies more broadly to general threshold training. First, as a framework, the lactate guided threshold interval training model in those studied in the paper consists of three to four threshold sessions per week, one VO2 max session, typically as hills, and then low intensity running up to as much as 180 kilometers a week, which would be over 110 miles. In volume, that's similar to what Professor Jones noted that Kipchoge is doing. In the total number of quality sessions, this seems similar to what he noted Paula Radcliffe does, or did, excuse me, in her world record training. It's just constituted in a very different way uh, with these multiple threshold sessions on a single day so that uh, we create three quality days. And then in that format, there's some hard easy, just like Bowerman did with the men of Mm -hmm. Oregon. The blood lactate concentration readings for the threshold sessions referenced range between the breakpoints that we most associate with the first and second lactate thresholds. So here's the key findings. The intensity of sessions in that range, and now this is a quote, may allow for a more rapid recovery through a lower central and peripheral fatigue between sessions compared with that of greater intensities and therefore a greater weekly volume of these specific workouts. Uh, The authors also note that chunking into intervals allows you to hit higher absolute speeds and maximize motor unit recruitment with lower metabolic intensity. And then finally, And this one is a bit deeper science, so I'll simplify. There seems to be a possible optimization of the signaling pathways in this type of training that might lead to increased mitochondrial proliferation. As I mentioned, they study, uh, survey the historical trends, the best practices, the intensity distributions and distance training. And in that section, the authors then assert the superiority of internal load measures. So this goes back to what you said earlier tonight, Phil, like blood lactate over external measures like running speed in most accurately understanding effort. In turn, the Norwegian model uses that internal load measurement to control the prescription of paces of reps or length of reps, or both. Phil, let's pause there for a minute and and touch on that point. Go ahead. To me, this is where I think the meat of the success of this program probably lies, Mm. in that 
you know, we've talked about calculating training load in the past with either using mileage or speed or heart rate or power. But here they're even going a little bit deeper and actually taking these blood lactate measurements to make sure that they're operating right where they intend to be. And I think that's probably where a lot of average runners err with too much variability and yeah. that they're either training too easy or too hard when they think they may be even intentionally trying to train around a relatively tight band. Let me pause you there, Phil. Mm -hmm. If we're making that mistake, would you rather err in this, in, in your harder sessions toward too hard or too easy? If that's the mistake, and I agree with you, that's commonly being made, um, particularly yeah. among Western runners. Yeah. Where we're, we, we seem to have a misconception of what we think we should do in training sessions. That's one misconception of mm -hmm. they all got to be hammered to get better. Or two, maybe a, an equally as common misconception is I'm doing this workout at 5K effort and my, my numbers just don't work out. What I think is 5K effort is unrealistic. If I'm making a mistake in training, should I make it too easy or too hard on a hard day? Oh, I honestly don't know the answer to that. I asked the question because we want to err toward one side over the other so mm -hmm. that we help the audience create a framework for how they should approach workouts. Well, I would say on general easy aerobic days or recovery days, the current error probably is in training too hard. Mm -hmm. But I think in those situations that we need to err on the easy side. Okay, I agree. But on the workout days, I think that we should err on the hard side mm. with the caveat being that it should not be so hard that you can't finish the intended workout. Now, there's, there's some other circumstances that, that may uh, provide a caveat to that, but in general... I think the, the direction of the error should be on the too hard side for those workout days. Okay. I'll disagree. Please. The notion that you have to create a caveat for it is part of the problem, mm -hmm. right? We, we need to enter into workouts with a specific understanding of the intent of the day, allowing for this kind of gray space, this caveat, I think opens up the athletes to more potential mistakes. The research we're going to discuss now reinforces that erring on the side of something a little easier is probably the best course. I say that because the Western understanding of what it means to run at your threshold is almost across the board overrun. It's done too fast. We're crossing that second lactate threshold too frequently to get the intent of the work. And if the intent of the work, as noted here, is stacking as many quality consistent days as possible so that we get more total volume of quality, we can't push ourselves into that place that leads to greater fatigue because it won't allow us to stack the days. We won't be able to get as many workouts. And that's why I would err, regardless of the type of session, toward rather doing it just a touch too slow than doing it too hard. I'll take your point. And I think really that's where the value of this concept comes in is that it eliminates that error to a much greater degree than any other internal metric, whether that's heart rate or external metric, whether that's speed or power or what have you. And that we're allowed to get that much more precise, therefore allowing us to you know, as you say, stack the days and do a whole lot more work around those zones than we may be if we aren't being disciplined about where our effort is. Now, it can be expensive mm -hmm. to do blood lactate monitoring for the average person in all their quality sessions. It's a little bit invasive, you know, to do these pinpricks. So we have to find surrogates for it because it's not going to be possible all the time for everyone to, to go about this. And this links to my answer to our previous conundrum of how hard we should do our hard sessions. We do see other cultures, particularly the East Africans, being very tied to just perception of effort in a way that overlaps quite well with where their lactate readings are. And so using this maybe a little bit to get a better idea 
for your numbers could be really helpful, but we still have to be able to internalize it to a perception of effort. Connecting it appropriately to perception of effort is so significant. And I believe you're going to do that best when you just enter into the session thinking, I got to dial it back a little bit more because that, that is time and again, the experience of the folks that you see training in Norway with runners using this system, they say over and over again, these sessions are so much easier than I think they're supposed to be. Hmm. I assume that I have to work so much harder and I'm constantly getting pulled back. Uh, we'll come back to the paces a little bit. I know I kind of drove us off the edge there, Phil. So I apologize. Let's get back. To, <laughs> let's go back to the research in particular, but I, I do like that conversation. Let's ask why might this program work? The author suggested we have the oxygen delivery benefits of sustained cardiac output over time and increased mitochondrial and capillary density from a high volume of continuous low intensity running. So we have that in one bucket, the stuff that we know a lot of easy running does for us. And as an aside, these are mid-distance runners, okay? These are not marathoners that we're studying here, and they're up in that 100 mile a week area. Plus, you add to that, the threshold session approach activates both of the signaling pathways that lead to mitochondrial pro proliferation while avoiding, and this is this goes to my answer to our earlier question, Phil, while avoiding the disturbances from high intensity training, which might be inflammatory, but we're not 100% certain, mm -hmm. but we're avoiding those disturbances that can yield failure to adapt to training in the long term. And that's the lack of improvement that we often call overtraining. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to be in a safer spot to not overtrain by dialing it back a touch on those hard days, as opposed to pressing them a little bit more. As you noted earlier, elite athletes have used this approach for generations in that Bowerman hard day, easy day cycle to avoid overtraining, but we aren't entirely certain if that's the optimal balance. Here, it seems to work well where the hard day is really hard, not in the sense that it's done just faster and faster, but that we've put two quality sessions within the same hard day. That, that was one question I did have for you on this paper as it relates to like the applicability of somebody that, of course, we're talking middle distance runners in the paper versus marathoners who our target audience is. But also just from an average runner putting in 40, 50, 60, even 70 miles a week relative to their 110 miles a week. How do you think we apply that double threshold session concept to the average runner? Or even should that be a consideration? You know, I like the idea that having two workouts in a day certainly provides some discipline to the effort on that first session. And I like the idea that doing two workouts allows us to do a whole lot more volume, but is that even realistic for somebody that may not be doubling, period? Yeah. Short answer is I don't think it has to be constructed that way. Mm -hmm. Longer answer is let's put a pin in that and go through some of the specific workout sessions that you're referring to, Phil, and then mm -hmm. give it a little more explanation at the end. Okay. Okay. So a training near the velocity of the second lactate threshold, which for elites is probably around half marathon pace. For well-trained, solid runners, it's more like a 15K pace. Age groupers who are less experienced, more novice, it might be 10K pace. But that is noted in the, this research to possibly be optimizing motor unit recruitment and pathway signaling without the negative consequences of the elevated levels of metabolic byproducts we see with training in the highest zones or beyond critical speed, well into the severe domain. So just to recap there. In other studies referenced within this paper, we see with eight weeks of blood lactate guided training, participants increased absolute speed at the same blood lactate levels and decreased blood lactate levels at the same absolute speeds. So this would suggest that running the same pace after doing this threshold training became easier. And alternately, that when you wanted to push hard, you could do it faster. 
This was the training benefit that was most substantial in participants who maintain lactate levels during each training run rather than those who let the lactate levels drift. So translation there is doing this work at a slightly slower speed and staying in the threshold zone throughout the session showed more value than trying to maintain a slightly unmanageable speed or finishing harder. That I think goes to my answer to your earlier point as well, Phil, that actually when we looked at eight weeks of folks who did this training, and in some ways I hate these lab studies because the control sessions they use sometimes are just such garbage when we're comparing different workouts. But this is comparing within a training group just using this over eight weeks from where they were before to where they are now. Those who slowed it down a little bit to make sure they stayed in the appropriate lactate levels, they got the biggest benefit of decreased blood lactate levels at the same speed and higher speeds at the same blood lactate levels. I find that really interesting that you actually, by pulling back, you actually got more benefit. Really neat stuff. Uh, Next really significant point. When we manipulate the threshold session variables of speed of reps, duration of reps, and recovery, we can hit the lactate levels in very different ways. Now, here's another piece to why I answered the way I did to you, Phil. We can use a lot of threshold training, and it doesn't mean we're just running at this traditional, hey, you got to run, bang on this pace that we think connects to LT1 or LT2. It doesn't just mean it's marathon pace running or it's half marathon pace running. We can run it faster. So it might look like long, continuous reps that we're used to, or it could be these short, fast reps. A session that we've talked about here a, a lot that I love is like 400s in the 10K pace range. Mm -hmm. That might get you the dual benefit of threshold training and the specific muscle fiber recruitment and adaptation that are closer to race pace if you're training for a shorter endurance race like 3K, 5K, 8K, 10K. You can get some of the adaptations you need for it while still doing threshold training. Again, without some of the demands of running at those faster paces for long periods of time, this study notes that's going to change during the competitive phase. But for most of the year, we're touching on those quicker paces while still keeping the blood lactate levels low. And then the icing on the cake are the hill reps. That safely gives us the benefits of working in the highest effort zones. Uh, So those would be the things like the max stroke volume, the plasma volume, et cetera. And this to our conversation earlier, Phil, would be the one place where I would say it's okay to just let it rip and go harder, would be (laughs) on the uphill. Those account for that bit of, as Andy Jones referenced, malleable change in VO2 max. So the hills are periodized, and this is a quote from the paper, they are partly substituted for track workouts targeting competition paces at high lactate levels in the competitive period. So the authors note they've observed Jakob Ingerbritsen, for example, running those 400s where he might do up to 25 reps with 30 seconds rest at 64 seconds on average. That's slightly slower than 5K pace for over 10K of total work, but his blood lactate levels are not going over lactate threshold two. They're not crossing beyond into that severe domain with all those metabolic byproducts that are negative. We know as an elite athlete, he can handle a lot of volume and he can use and clear lactate at a level that's likely superior to the average athlete. And that would be true for most elite athletes like him in these mid-distance races. Remember that when he's running it down at 64 and getting close to his 5K pace, you and I might not be able to do that, Phil, but it it does show you that we can do threshold running while still running fast. Mm -hmm. Let's go now to your your question uh, about how do we constitute it as double thresholds if we're not running 100 miles a week? Uh, The authors do note the Frequency of sessions, it may yield better adaptations, but it still presents a risk for overtraining, especially for the less experienced. I see this paper 
as an argument for increasing training in this zone more generally, not just for the Norwegian model of double threshold training. It certainly props that up, but I do believe it tells you it doesn't just have to be double threshold. It would appear general time and zone, which again reinforces what Professor Jones told us last week, is beneficial. Think of it this way, Phil. If you're running, say, 40 miles a week and you're only doing one threshold run every other week, you don't need to jump to three or four sessions a week. Let's first try to do this weekly, then maybe twice weekly and accumulate time in this zone. So most people who are doing 40 miles a week, are, are they're doing hard sessions, right? Mm -hmm. The suggestion would be, well, let's just make sure at least one of them is a threshold run. You're probably going to make positive steps. And if you're overrunning your other quality session, well, then let's make it two that do this. Yeah. Let, let's, let's control ourselves. Well, and to your point, this probably oversimplifies it, but I think looking at it with this framework by slowing the reps down a little bit more, by shortening and throwing in a little bit more rest, we're able at the end of the day to put more total volume of time in those zones and at yeah. those paces throughout the week. So instead of doing it once every other week, you're able to do it once a week or even potentially twice a week. Whereas maybe you're not necessarily doing it twice a day, but you have a, a session on Tuesday that maybe is a little bit lighter and a little bit shorter than you normally would. But then that allows you to come around on Thursday and Friday and do something similar. So that by right. the end of the week, you have a whole lot more time in those zones than you would have just having a, a beefier single session. That's right. Think about it this way, Phil. Think about strides as a great analogy. Yeah. Uh, imagine how much work you can do at, let's say, at your top end of a stride, you're going to mile pace. How much work can you do at mile pace over the course of the week? It, it's, yeah. it's limited, but you can regularly do strides and break those into 15, 20 seconds. And over the course of a week could do far more than a mile yeah. at your mile pace. To some degree, that I believe is an analogy to what's happening here with threshold training that's lactate guided or in a broader sense, controlled effort guided, hitting into the right zones and finding other surrogates for lactate and then turn that into a better understanding of the perceived effort that equates to these threshold levels. I'll finish this with two points I noted. One is a question, does this work for the marathon? The longest run hmm. any of these runners did 21K, just about a half marathon. They'd be great half marathon runners. Yeah. Just throwing out something to tie back in to my biggest uh, point from Andy Jones with your question about how we constitute uh, these sessions and how frequently we do them. What about plugging in that pro progressive gear change long run within this framework? That starts to look a little bit more like what the Norwegian triathletes do. They do yep. very long runs like 40K at Ironman marathon pace. Right. So it's specific and it's a long tempo. Now maybe uh, that becomes another one of your threshold days if it's controlled well, that gives you just another session of that type of work throughout the week and helps better prepare you for the marathon. The total volume of mileage that they're doing certainly is enough to be successful as marathoners. Right, absolutely. To do it as well as possible, you probably have to run longer than 21K. This mm. does raise a point of, do you always need that long run when training for say a 5K? There's certainly benefits, but it's not the only way to get to those benefits. Mm. I enjoy a long run, so I'm gonna take that path myself. I think most distance runners do. That's just something we, we like and we build our calendar around. To that point, one of the things Andy Jones raised was he likes doing minute reps on his treadmill because he's a former 1500 guy. He's a former track guy. That's right? miserable to me. Right. I don't want any part of this. <laughs> no. But, but what's going to motivate the individual athlete to keep getting out there? And it had me thinking like, Phil, what's your favorite, just right now, what's your favorite session? Ooh. Right now, probably the long run. Yeah. So you should probably be doing it at least regularly because it's going to keep you motivated. And yeah. we, know, we know it has good benefits. I've said a million times on here, I love hills. I love uh, a Mona fart. Like, they're great sessions. They're not my favorite right now. 
I love like a medium long, maybe 90 minutes progressive. Mm-hmm. That, that's my favorite session. And it probably has been for a while. If it was appropriate for recovery and within my other days of my training uh, microcycle, I could get amped up to do that almost every day. Yeah. So, so yeah. stuff like that should have a place in your training. If if thinking about working out twice in one day just sounds miserable to you, then why in the world would you be doing it? That's not going to be good for your long-term growth. And, and moreover, an overarching point here, Phil, is doing two workouts in a day is for such a small fraction of athletes. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not because more couldn't handle it or more wouldn't like it. But we just have to remember what daily schedules look like and how hard that can be. You know, running twice in a day easy is enough challenge That's for enough some folks. challenge to coordinate. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and I enjoy doing that, but I don't know that a second hard session within a day gets me very excited knowing the other things I have to do within a day. But that's why we bring you the research is to show the scientific backing behind the value of this type of training just from the individual sessions. So that when Mm. Phil raises the point, how do we do this double threshold on 40 miles a week? You say, "Ah, you don't necessarily have to, but you could do more of these workouts sprinkled in throughout your training. And it seems like it would have value. Yeah. My other big takeaway, uh, Phil, that is, is not touched on in the paper, but I think is a key point we need to dive into with this type of study later on and goes back to where we started this episode. These Norwegian guys, they do cross country. The hills are prep for the cross country. Just that strength that is built with racing that type of event. But there it is. The cross country is a prep for success on all surfaces. Mm-hmm. It's part of why they are good at 10,000 and I believe would be good at the half marathon if they were doing more of it. And it's something that not a lot of modern American distance runners are doing at the highest level. I'll give Galen Rupp a ton of credit. When he was at his best, he still ran a lot of cross country. You know, he showed up at US champs a lot of years. It translates, and particularly back to that half marathon and marathon question with this system. It's just got a strength that translates. There's, there's no question. We need more controlled studies on this, certainly to reinforce the science. But as always, Phil, the, the athletes and the coaches are ahead of the science anyway. You know, the, well, the science it, are trying to explain what the coaches and athletes are already figuring out. To me, the fascinating takeaways from this paper were them tracking the development of interval training through history, you know, mm. from Pablo Nermi to Ingloy to the Ingebrigtsen's now, and even on the, the front page of this paper, I wrote, is this just a modern form of igloy training? And that mm-hmm. we're doing a lot of intervals, but we are just very carefully controlled with them, but also just getting a more specific insight into how this is practiced at the elite level. Yeah. Great points. And I think you're right. It is to some degree just this a modern day version of what all those coaches back in 1964 were doing from an alternations standpoint within workouts. Yeah. You know, it's just a different construction of, of alternations. They were all getting at the same thing, but it is fascinating to think that with our current technology and communications, this may lead to a greater globalization of training than mm-hmm. what any of those coaches were able to touch. 60 years ago, because they just didn't have access to as many people and as many networks as we do today. And so we quickly learn what someone's doing in Norway. It spreads like wildfire. And it'll be really fun to see, as I referenced with Ryan Krauser earlier in his new slight change in his form, if this is in some way our generation's watershed moment in distance training of a globalization of at the elite level, maybe more twice a day threshold sessions, but just in general, more uh, internal load controlled threshold work Mm -hmm. as a way to optimize endurance performance. Phil, any other thoughts before we wrap it? That was a lot of thinking, Travis. I'm it tired. was. It was. I'm worn out. I'm ready for bed. That I'm was, too old for this, man. That was a lot of fear. You are now. Are we, <laughs> we're the same age now, aren't we, bud? I'm 39. So oh, I think my so. God. You're an old man. It was. It's really fun to break this down, though. Dig into the science. We hope you all benefit from that and can uh, 
start to use it within your own training. But if you have questions, please, as always, hit us at secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to discuss the science behind what's happening with our kind of modern take on an old classic in threshold training. Before we go, Phil, last thing is uh, we mentioned all the racing that's happening and didn't get to the Greenville Half Marathon that was a week ago. And so uh, before we sign off, I just want to congratulate a ton of Seconds Flat athletes and listeners who were there. That's a, Oh, they had a great showing out there. It was great to go out and watch. It was a, it was a perfect day for a great race. That's, that's what I heard. And that's an old favorite. Uh, you and I have run it before. We've done course previews here and on the show and videos for it on YouTube. A great event. So many great times out there. Our guy, James Quattlebaum with the victory. Congrats to so many people on a successful outing there. And hopefully that springboards you into a great spring of training and racing. So Phil, let's leave it there and we will see you next time on mile 145 of Seconds Flat. Everybody have a great week.